Computing Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So this is going to be a fun episode because I once again get to induct another member into the Fascinating Nouns Two-Timers Club, and that is one Bob Calhoun. Who you remember our last episode, we talked about the independent wrestling promotion, Incredibly Strange Wrestling, uh, and his time up there in San Francisco. And we're going to keep it in the same geographical area because he's just written a book called The Murders That Made Us, which chronicles the underbelly, the crime-ridden history of San Francisco and the surrounding areas. And it really tells a really interesting tale of not only how an area is built, but just how ingrained into the culture some of these crimes, criminals, uh, murders even, uh, are really are a part of a growing society and a growing civilization, or at least a part of the West uh, back in the 1800s. And, and it's it tells a, a pretty intriguing and captivating tale, and I want to jump right into this because we've got a lot to get into. So, Bob, thanks so much for being on the show today. I got to ask you, Bob. First question here: What made you decide to focus on the crime of the area as a way to define the city? It was really—I I mean, everybody has these these kind of lurid fascinations. I think, like some people are way more into it than others, but really, it started with me digging into some family history and my mother uh died passed away in 2009 and there was this one story that she would talk about but kind of in kind of measured tones like my mother wasn't like the most serious person she was a gossip and <laughs> she loved to talk about like she yeah. she like avoided getting a washer and dryer in her house, like it broke down and she just kept going to the laundromat. And even after a while, like, mom, maybe we should go to Sears. Mm -hmm. But she liked the drama of the laundromat. She liked to. She would call me when I was living in San Francisco. She was she lived down um, in Menlo Park, um, but she would go to the laundromat to to and she would like to call me to tell me about fights at the laundromat over dryers like these women were pulling each other's hair and they were punching each other and you know like she would just go like all of a sudden like it was like howard cosell doing an ali fight or something <laughs> um like like jim ross you know on wwe yeah, or, or jr yeah you know like oh, she was broken in half right. she oh my god <laughs> yeah, yeah you know yeah and, but you know this story um, the story about the murder, she was a little more, I don't know. It, it was like something she would mention and talk about. And I, I, I ended up asking, you know, my mom was gone. I couldn't ask her about it anymore. And so I asked my dad, they'd been divorced for like 30 plus years at the time I asked this or 25 years. Um, but I asked him and, you know, we were having, we were having lunch. We were met for lunch, like father's day or whatever it was brunch. And I asked him, I'm like, you know, dad, there was like this murder either 
when you lived in South San Francisco, which was a little before my time, or maybe when I was a kid in Redwood City, like some friend of yours got murdered, friend of the family's, and he just kind of stopped and he said, August Nori. And then it's creepy. You know, August. Yeah, Nori. it was just kind of this like I was kind of expecting it to be, oh yeah, that thing. But it was just like, you know, the conversation kind of went into a black hole for a second. He pauses. And then he tells me, like, oh, your mother was a suspect in this murder. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't realize that. And I was I was born in, you know, I'm just going to have to dish my age here. I was born in 1969. My parents were already approaching middle age when I was born. I'm a little later. I'm uh, 11 years younger than my sister. So this murder happened in 1959. It's on Groundhog Day. I remember I wrote that down. It's one of my favorite oh, things. Oh, I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, it's on I Groundhog's was, Day. Mm-hmm. I got distracted. It happened in February uh, 1959, and uh, my sister had was born in May. So she was still uh, May, the previous May, in 58. So she was still very, very uh, – she was still nearly a newborn. She wasn't a year old yet. Um, but he, uh, this guy, August Nori goes to San Bruno mountain, which is still a mostly undeveloped patch of, of real estate on the Southern border of San Francisco between San Francisco and the suburbs, the suburban city called daily city, where I actually lived at the time. I talked to my dad about this and, uh, you know, very foggy place. It's where the fog really collects. Like there's foggy neighborhoods in San Francisco, but that daily city, San Francisco border, like there's just like the fog gets over a hill, a ridge and just stays there. And so August Nori was this kind of, he, he kind of had an Errol Flynn mustache. He was, a he was a former like minor league baseball player, a pitcher, but he couldn't. I got to tell you, you really set this up like a gothic novel, though. I mean, it, that's <laughs> you know, like the, the, you got the, the the fog heaven over the the mountaintop. A guy with an Earl Flynn mustache. You got a murder. Your mom's involved. I mean, this is this is good stuff. He was a, a former minor league pitcher. My dad said his fastball wasn't good enough to get uh, major league or like the San Francisco seals. We're really talking slightly pre giants. The giants had just come to San Francisco. So the seals were the team that he tried out for, which was the team that developed Joe DiMaggio before he went to the Yankees. So that was like the San Francisco team until the giants moved from giants and Dodgers moved from New York to the West coast. So he was, he did all these things. He was, he wasn't, he didn't have a real steady job and he did a lot of guard gardening and yard work. So he went to San Bruno mountain to like dump lawn clippings. Cause it's the fifties and people did that. My, my dad talked about how they used to go hunting there for rabbits, which the idea in modern San Francisco of people like hunting, you know, and what's now a public park basically is, is kind of funny to me. That's so odd. So, so you, when you say dump lawn clippings, you couldn't throw them. How does, I mean, that's so bizarre to me. So he would go to this park and dump them and then hunt and that's kind of what it was used for. Well, people just did everything. People just dumped, I mean, you know, up, up through the seventies almost wow. like the seventies is when people started to like, you know, there were these campaigns to throw your trash away, put it in a trash basket, you know, before then people just dump 
shit. Anyway. <laughs> I guess it's so, like such a foreign concept, but I guess you're right. It's so weird. You yeah. Know? Anyway, it's crazy. He would have a truck full of of like gardening, you know, stuff he had, you know, plants that he had trimmed and weeds that he'd pulled, and he would dump them on the mountain that he his dad lived lived on practically. And uh, so he he meets this young blonde woman there. And, you know, they and August Nori is married and he has a kid on the way at the time this happens. So he meets this young blonde woman and I will leave who this is. Could have been my mother, at least mm-hmm. as far as the police were concerned. He meets her there and they have they go to like a burger stand and they mm-hmm. you know, there's some flirting there. There's definitely some flirting. He's definitely leading her on. And so that, you know, he, oh, yeah, I'll call you, you know, that sort of thing. And then he doesn't call her. And then so August Nori uh, goes back, you know, later on, he's dumping more lawn clippings or doing whatever he does. And he runs into her again. And she has a revolver. She has a gun, like a thirty-eight. I think. I'd, ha- I'd have to look at my notes. Um, she has a thirty-eight, and she says, oh, you want to shoot this gun? And he, he's, sure, fine. You know, people are... You know, I I think if some woman had a gun and said, hey, you want to do some target practice, I would I would uh, probably say no, thank you and back away and get away as soon as possible. Like I ran into a mountain (laughs) lion or something on the hill, but he's game for it. It turns out he was the target. She ended up shooting him 18 times and it was a six shooter. So she had to reload twice. Well, three times. It's 18 shots. She drives his car like she dumps his body somewhere on the mountain, drives his car down, and she ditches the car down in the kind of suburban neighborhood down the hill. And some kids see her, and they describe her as a young blonde woman. Now, enter my mother. She is 24 years old at the time. She's blonde. And my family was very intertwined with the Norris. And... He, uh, you know, they lived two doors down from August Nori's dad and the Norris all lived there. They all grew up together. My mother lived across the street from my father's family. My grandmother lived in this house and this is a neighborhood called Crocker Amazon. It's not really well known. It's kind of up the hill from the more famous mission district. Like if you keep going down or up mission street or down mission street South, you will be in this neighborhood and it's on the hillside on San Bruno mountain. Um, Patty Hearst was later, uh, found there. That was the neighborhood she hid out in, um, and hid out for quite a while until the FBI finally figured out where she was. Um, this is 20 years after this, but you know, it's a Dan white is kind of from that neighborhood. That was Dan white's district. It's a, it's a neighborhood that actually like, it's one of the kind of most forgotten neighborhoods of San Francisco. It's not one of the trendiest neighborhoods or well-known neighborhoods, but it's a neighborhood that surprisingly turns up a lot in my Mm. book, The Murders That Made Us, which is, you know, the history of San Francisco through crimes. But uh, my mother, uh, they lived uh, down the street from the Norris. Um, uh, August Norris brother, Bob Norris was maybe the reason I'm named Bob and I need to ask my dad this. Um, They were very close. My uncle dated one of the Nori brothers, one of the women, woman who eventually became one of the Nori brothers wives, wife. And, uh, so they, the families were very close and my dad would go hunting with the Nori brothers on San Bruno mountain and they would hunt for rabbits. And those rabbits are still there. I used to hike around there. 
um, first because I was writing the story and wanted to kind of get the feel for the place. And then later it was just like a place that was quiet to go to in the middle of the day to, then there's trails there. But anyway, so my mom was, uh, was, was a suspect. She was, she met the description and she was questioned by the police and that was my first crime story. I'm going to leave it there. I don't want to give away everything here. Well, then let me ask you before you do that. I mean, would you have to answer one question to give people the, the, the really wet their appetite. Did you ever know your mom to be a bloodthirsty killer or did she hide it pretty well while you were growing up? (laughs) My mom, uh, my mom was fascinated with bloodthirsty killers, but I, (laughs) I, I hope she wasn't one. Um, you know, she definitely like I, I wish she was still around to read this book. This would be the, the first book I've written that she would want to read. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, she would like she would call me about every little thing in the book. You know, like there would just be the, the I think this guy is cuckoo. She would say, you know, yeah, he was cuckoo. He was convicted of chopping up people and dumping them, you know, or whatever story she would be fixating on in the Bay Area in the Chronicle, the San Francisco Chronicle, San Francisco Examiner, the San Mateo Times, which was a suburban paper that doesn't exist anymore. That was a big story. That was that was what they were leading with for a while. And there were like twists and turns in the case. And I detail them in the book um, as you know, and, and I will say this much. My mother, my dad said that they were followed by the police for a while, that they would be driving and and my dad would go oh it's our friend you know because they had a tail now when you say they, the newspapers were covering it you mean they were covering this the nori murder they were covering the nori murder they don't um i could not find mention of my mom you know except for like a bunch of women were questioned and they talked about one that slept around you know that was there was some slut shaming in the descriptions that sure. wasn't my mom because she had a newborn baby at home or uh, what you know uh seven-month-old baby at home at the time (laughs) my sister yeah but um but yeah they i i was really looking for that stuff and i was really hoping to find public records or court records and nobody there were two police agencies that worked on the case the san mateo county sheriffs and uh daily city police and nobody nobody had the records of it and there's a reason for that. I'm going to be mum on that. The court records, I was really surprised that San Mateo County, which is where this was tried, which is a suburban county just south of San Francisco, they didn't have the court records. So I was really hoping to find that because sometimes the court records include portions of the police reports and things. I, I couldn't find anything beyond those newspaper clips. You know, you, you know, the police officers, like, I mean, this murder happened in 59, so... The the um, police officers were long since dead because these are middle aged men. You know, I see their pictures in like newspaper clippings from the Chronicle, the Examiner. And, you know, there's pictures of these guys and they're like they look like they're 60, but they're probably 40. Right. Yeah. People age. You know, yeah. Yeah. People age a little differently back then. Yeah. Drinking lots of scotch, drinking, smoking lots of cigarettes and cigars like so nobody's really around this particular story. I mean, it sounds like it has a very personal feel. So this is what kind of got you into writing this book. Yeah, that's what got me uh, writing crime stuff. I had Mm. shopped the story around to uh, the weekly, the Chronicle, uh, San Francisco magazine, which was still locally produced back then. 
And I never got like, you know, there's, there's two kinds of rejections. There's the, they just ghost you rejection, as, as you know, when you're shopping projects around. Yep. And then there's like what I call the positive rejection where the, the editor or the producer actually takes the time to write like a nice note about it or a nice email back. Like this is a really strong story. We like it, but you know, it was always the kind of like, we're working on some other cold case type stories and we just don't, you know, we're just going to be inundated with it. It was just timing. Mm. But the, one of the editors at the weekly liked it and liked the story. And it's like that thing, like when I was in broadcasting school at San Francisco state, the guy who produced Frazier wrote a Barney Miller spec script and Barney Miller rejected it. But like it, he ended up getting a job producing the Jeffersons for a while. You know, so it was like that. It was like that story is really good. And it was a long story. It's a 3,500 word, 4,000 word story. So it wasn't like something they were looking for. That would be a cover story for them. But he was like, they, everybody was looking for stuff to put online. So this is 2015. So he wanted me to do a regular column, which was like a regular true crime column and just find random crimes. I had, I mean, I was only getting paid 50 to a hundred bucks a story, but you know, it's basically high end clickbait. Like, right, you know, yeah. being older finally paid off in a slight way because it's like I had, I was, I was bored in San Francisco, uh, from my gossipy mom and other things. I just was aware of kind of a more obscure crime cases, like maybe just in the back of my memory that this or that was a thing when I was a kid or something my mom w would talk about. Um, so I just kind of had a regional knowledge as it were mm -hmm. that maybe somebody in their thirties who had moved from Minnesota or wherever just wouldn't have not to denigrate people who come from elsewhere. San Francisco is a port of call. It always will be, um, uh, not to go totally towny on anybody like that, but, uh, but I had a regional knowledge and a regional background and just kind of knew weird stuff. So yeah, I was doing it weekly after a while it was bi-weekly. It would shift around and it was high end clickbait to get people to read the website and I could explore anything. And I did. I went from one week I'd be writing about something in the Victorian age, the 1870s, some crime from then. Um, and then the next week I would be writing about, you know, the kind of stuff, you know, stuff you'd expect, Zodiac Killer kind of stuff. And, you know, murders on Haight Street in the late 60s and the Summer of Love and Altamont and Jonestown and um, – those things. So I had like this big run, like I survived, uh, four editorial changes there. And after a while, you know, people at my work, I, I worked at UC Berkeley in fundraising. That was the day job. Like this wasn't the crime column wasn't paying the bills. It was more than a hobby, but it was still a side job. Right. And, um, and it's kind of what I'd rather be doing. I'd rather be writing. I'd rather be creating. And my job is great. But, um, but my colleagues or my coworkers at UC Berkeley, they would read the stuff. Um, for a while, I would post the links on LinkedIn. And that's how they would see them until the associate vice chancellor uh, expressed that she, she was a little weirded out by stories about Ed Kemper from like one of her researchers on LinkedIn. So I kind of cooled that. <laughs> I, I'm like, okay, you know, you're writing these things every week. You don't need to post them on LinkedIn all the time, but it was funny. Like the, the associate vice chancellor of university relations was like, told me that one of my stories gave her nightmares. <laughs> but, right. uh, 
<laughs> Not the way, message you necessarily uh, want to get, but yeah, at least it was yeah. she was reading it. Oh, I know. That's the funny thing. And, you know, this is a kind of powerful person on the campus. But uh, the co my my kind of more working class co-workers were reading it. They kept wanting a collection. And I'm like, well, you could just read it online for free, you know, and I, I can never get the weekly to take these things down. But they just kept wanting it. And then I was reading The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury. And The Martian Chronicles, it's kind of people think of it as a novel. But it's really a collection of short stories that Bradbury made into this history of this false history. It didn't exist. It's science fiction. But this history of the human um, colonies on Mars. But each story was like a short story that he wrote and he sold to these science fiction magazines they had back in the 50s, like Weird Tales or analog science fiction and things. And then he collected them and then he probably wove them together a little better. And I was like, what? A, you know, I had crime stories from the vigilante era because San Francisco as a American city, as in the United States of America, is a um, – Starts with crime, starts with the vigilantes um, and their crimes and the crimes that they were trying to eradicate. Um, so it starts in this kind of kind of gold rush. You know, it starts with the gold rush and the vigilantes. So I had stories from the vigilante days in the 1850s and the very formation of the city. I had story other stories from the 19th century. I had stories from the 20s, 30s. I had stories from the 60s. And a lot of the stories kind of told – or touched on events, like I said, like the Summer of Love, um, you know, uh, Mayor Moscone and Harvey Milk are assassinated by a former supervisor, Dan White, in the late 70s. So the kind of 70s malaise is touched on. So I can string all this even through this century, like Gavin Newsom and Kimberly Gifoyle and Kamala Harris all come into play later in the book. Uh, they aren't main characters, but you have these powerful figures, uh, Governor Jerry Brown, um, his dad, who was the former district attorney and governor of California. These people all kind of come through these crime stories at some point. And President Gerald Ford, you know, who was almost assassinated by Sarah Jane Moore at the St. Francis Hotel in in the mid seventies as well. So it, it's like, you just have, you know, but there's a lot of stories that aren't like that aren't about mayors and governors and things that don't have those people in them that are just these kind of small stories. But I hope that I always tried to tell the story of the neighborhood or of a moment in time, um, through my crime stories. I always wanted to hit on something else with them. And so I was able to make it into somewhat of a narrative and it's, and that is The Murders That Made Us, which is coming out in May or hopefully will be out when this airs or when this posts. Yeah, it'll it'll be out by then and people can pick it up. And it is just – I was actually fascinated by how many narrative threads there are in the book. You know, I mean how many different things come up and how many different kind of, you know, side stories that you give on mainstream stories. So, for example, I mean you talk about – uh, you talk about Charles Manson's first – what you think is his first murder. I mean everyone knows about the Tate LaBianca murders. Uh, but you talk about um, a, a – I think it was a small gangster that he held over a cliff or something like that. Like that's – you know that might have been his first murder. Like that's really interesting to me. Well, OK. It's this um – I have to unfortunately to talk about him uh, – talk about the victim in this case. I have to use 
a somewhat antiquated racial slur. And I'm just going to preface it because there's just, it is what he called himself. Um, he was a acid dealer, uh, um, an African American acid dealer. And he'd referred to himself as super spade. And he, uh, even printed buttons and he wore a button like this huge oversized button on his lapels that was, uh, that said super spade faster than a speeding mind. And he was a character in the summer of love and, and on the hate in uh, 1967, he was a lot of people's hookup for psychedelics and he was found dead, um, over by point Reyes, which is up the coast, like outside of San Francisco, maybe about two, two and a half hours up the coast here. Uh, very scenic place. Uh, the John Carpenter movie, the fog was filmed there. Um, if, uh, you have any horror fans listening to this, well, the 1980 John Carpenter movie. And so he was found hanging, you know, his body was found stabbed several times and, uh, and just kind of dumped there hanging off a cliffside in 1967. And this is August of 67. So sometimes you hear, like baby boomers, people who are kind of adjacent at the summer of love, or they kind of, um, they kind of deify the figures of the summer of love and they act like all the bad stuff happened years later, but the summer of love started to turn bad by August, by fall, the, you know, the dying season, the summer of love has gone bad. There's some murders, really brutal murders, including, uh, poor Mr. SS, I will call him from now on. Uh, he was, uh, he was brutally murdered. There was another guy, um, who, who was killed in his, uh, his psychedelic pad and had his arm cut off. And they found the murderer of that guy, uh, driving around with a stolen, uh, VW van with the arm still in the van, Jeez, <laughs> you know? <yeah. laughs> so, so right. there was just these crazy murders and, uh, Mr. SS was found. Now, the reason I linked the case to Manson is Manson was on the hate at the time. But if you read Manson in his own words, which is one of my sources, which is a kind of oral Manson, you know, a bunch of interviews with Manson from like the 80s or 90s and him telling his own story. He talks about how he loved to drive up to Point Reyes and him and like what were basically the first members of the family um, like squeaky from and, and, uh, I forget that, that woman's name who was like his first girlfriend in Berkeley, but he, he was known to go through there and he talks a lot about it. And the, the reason I think he might've been a suspect in this particular murder is, uh, SS resembles other people that Manson, the people we know that Manson killed or was there for their murders, you know, the uh, Tate LaBianca murders, he orders his, his followers to kill people. You, you, you see, and he's not really there. He drops them off and he's not there, but like the murder of lots of, or actually lots of Papa survived. Lots of Papa Crow was a small time, uh, drug dealer. And then the very brutal murder by Bobby Boussoulet of, of, um, Greg Hinman, those are in L.A., but these are shakedowns of drug dealers where Manson and his Confederates are trying to get cash from them. And and uh, SS was rumored or it was it was said by other people that he had something in the neighborhood of even like 50K, which might be an exaggeration. But I mean, if it was even 5K back then, somebody like Charlie would have killed him over it. And the fact that, my, you know, that. Manson is going up and down the coast there. Um, 
that that that's stomping grounds at the time this guy is dumped there and he resembles the other people that Manson had murdered or ordered murdered. And, you know, he Manson before Tate LaBianca, he's killing people to to killing drug dealers to take their money, basically, or because he owes them money and doesn't want to pay them. And, you know, they're kind of botched shakedowns of these guys. And and so it meets that profile. Now that makes sense. I mean, one of the things that I always stress, because everyone always talks about Charles Manson being a murderer, I don't know that he actually murdered anybody. I mean, that's what always was would always surprise people when I would say, well, he's, he's in jail, but he didn't actually murder anybody and he'll never get out. So I don't know that he would have murdered murdered Super Spade. I think he would have – but you're saying he may have ordered the murder of him, involved somehow. With lots of Papa Crow, if I remember correctly, and it's not something I really wrote about. It's something I've read about in um, Jeff Gwynn's Manson biography. This was the thing that Bugliosi was able to make the case that Manson should be tried for these murders was that he did – they ba- Manson did participate in the stabbing and beating of Crow, but they left him for dead. He had survived and Manson didn't know it. And that's the big star witness that comes out to say, you know, this guy did this terrible stuff to me and tried to kill me. He attempted to murder me. He just didn't. So that that's the one that we know he actually, you know, he actually killed himself. I mean, there are the bodies of the the body of that stunt man that was found on Spawn Ranch like very recently. So who knows who killed him? Maybe Charlie did. I don't know. Um, yeah, and nobody will ever know, really. But this was a but this this was an unsolved murder, which is how you can attribute to him, right? Yeah, it's an unsolved murder. Um, the only thing that makes me think that maybe he wasn't killed by the Mansons is I just. I just think like Squeaky or somebody would have said something about it by now. I mean, there they could have been Hell's Angels. It could have. It's a definite murder mystery, and Manson's definitely, as far as I'm concerned, is a a very very good suspect for it. Uh, the other thing Manson says, though, um, in in Manson in his own words, is that you know the murder of 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 super spade the murder of shab who was this other drug dealer and just other things like the hate was getting so violent in 67 that he he takes off for Topanga Canyon and goes to Los Angeles and the rest is history. Like the hate was too violent for Charles Manson. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, is, that is a weird thought. I, I mean, it's kind of, you know, you paint a very interesting picture of the sixties, you know, I mean, there are a couple of very different perspectives on the sixties because, you know, as we go towards the end of the decade, you know, we have the moon landing and the Manson murders both at the, you know, within, I think it's two weeks of each other. And it's really, Manson is really the lens at which most people look, at least to the end of the 60s, they look through, you know, his eyes and his his actions. So it's it's interesting to have, I think you mentioned him one other time in the book, but it's just fun to see these other characters show up and the story you're telling isn't about them, but they're still characters in that story somehow, which I think is interesting. Um, one of the other, one of the other stories you talk about in this book, which I'd never heard of, but it's, it's, such a weird confluence of events and of people all at the same time are the Santa Cruz murders in the early 70s. You talk about it being the murder capital of the world, you know, if only for a, a brief period of time. Uh, tell me a little bit about how how this kind of well, – what was going on in the early 70s in Santa Cruz? 
Well, the the district attorney at the time uh, dubbed it that because he just they had so many of these mass murder cases. Uh, There was the case of the Oda family. That was like the first one where this kind of um, this like schizophrenic. God, what was John Lindsay Frazier? There's so many of them. John Lindsay Frazier. Yeah, he's the guy who eventually shows up in court. Like he's got this big hippie beard and long hair, but he shaves the other side <laughs> yeah, of his head. Yeah. And he's half uh if you look for him online. Looks like Two Face. I mean, it's so bizarre. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. He murders this whole family and dumps all the bodies in the pool and he writes all these like cryptic messages about the uh, kind of like about the tarot. He leaves these messages about the tarot and he's caught fairly quickly. he's not really a serial killer per se. It's like he gets lumped in as one, but he's a mass murderer, but he only killed everybody in this one incident. But then there's two other serial killers within the same year or year and a half. There is a more famous Ed Kemper because of mind Hunter on Netflix. And there is Herbert Mullen who actually murdered more people than Kemper. Like I think Kemper was like, 10 people and Mullen was 13. Um, I don't know. I, I don't really try to keep like, you know, I don't really try to keep like draft King stats on serial killers. Although there are people who do, right. Uh, I don't use saber metrics on, on murderers, but so within this time, you know, in Santa Cruz is this small coastal town, um, South way South of San Francisco. And it's got the beach boardwalk there. It's got one of these kind of foggy amusement parks like playland at the beach. Uh, the one thing that changed is there's two things that happen in the sixties. One is the opening of the university of California campus there, which brings a lot more young people there who ended up being the victims by and large for Mullen and Kemper and also the highway. So these murderers could kill these young people, usually young people, and they could just jump on the highway and dump the body and bodies in different places. You know, so you have these these two things like there is a kind of right wing way of looking at it, that it's the promiscuousness of the 60s and the promiscuousness of of co-ed campuses. You know, you'll read this stuff. Um, But maybe I should go a little more into both killers. Um, Herbert Mullen who gets uh, kind of left out a little bit. He uh, believed he was schizophrenic and, you know, the med- he wasn't medicated. The family had tried several times to get him committed or to get him help because he would just start saying really weird shit at the dinner table and just doing weird things um, and disturbing his family members and disturbing like longtime friends. He tried to join the uh, Marines or the army and didn't last very long. He, but he had this belief. There were these predictions in the press at the time that this guy was saying that there was going to be this major 1906 type earthquake that was going to make the coast of California fall into the sea. And Herbert Mullen somehow believed if he kept murdering people that would appease these kind of psychic forces and prevent the earthquake from happening. So if he goes around, I mean, it makes no sense, but if he goes around killing random people, then, then, you know, so he kills 13 people, but that kept 
millions of people from dying in his mind. Well, what's interesting about that, I just want to pause you for a second, because that is, I mean, it seems strange to us, right? I'm going to guess that they weren't random people. I'm guessing he picked them for specific reasons, unless you know otherwise. But that's also very similar to, you know, a lot of the early cultures in human history to appease, you know, the various gods would do human sacrifice or animal sacrifice to to hold them off. I, I mean, it's, yeah, it's not an exact parallel, but it's it's strange how the human mind can somehow connect these natural forces um, and, do, and sacrificing things on Earth to appease these natural forces. I mean, it, it is a theme throughout human history. Yeah, um, and and he might have read some book or seen some movie or TV show that put that idea in his head, and he's a, a vulnerable person or a, you know, he's soaking up. He's soaking up weird bits of news and pop culture like a sponge and it's coming out in these terrible, violent ways. He um, he also believed his dad, even though he you know, he he would go have dinner with his father sometimes, but he believed his father was sending him psychic messages. So, yeah, some of the people were random and some weren't. Some were people that he knew. Like he he killed like uh, several people who kind of it wasn't really a compound, but they all kind of cohabitated together, and he was like drawn to murder people that you know these these like friends of his from high school or college or whatever it was. Um, but it was there were also just random ones. He came across some some dudes hanging out on the beach and murdered them. He drove down to like basically a Campbell, like a suburb of San Jose, and killed a random priest who was just happened to be you know in the church by himself that day. Um, and then uh, his last murder he did in broad daylight because he got a message from his dad in his head that yo you know before you go drop off this firewood that you're bringing over to my house i think it was firewood you know you have to kill somebody so he just goes into some guy's yard some middle-aged man's yard and, and shoots him with one of the guns he got from the dudes on the beach cuz they had a rifle that he took you know when he killed them so and then everybody sees it and that's when he gets caught now Ed Kemper is a much more I mean the reason Ed Kemper is is has has uh captured the public imagination more is because he's like nearly 7 feet tall and he was a necrophiliac and um it's something I kind of left out of the book cuz the sources I was reading didn't really have it but he beheads his mother and does things to the behead, the you know head um yeah so he was kind of more like a Ted Bundy type where he's a necrophiliac and murdering and and doing terrible terrible things with the bodies before he finally disposes of them um much much sicker person even uh Mullen almost when you compare any of these guys to Kemper they almost become sympathetic as terrible as their deeds were they there's the argument that they don't really know what they're doing um, and one of my sources for those stories was murder and madness by Donald Lundy, who was a Stanford psychiatrist who ended up becoming a specialist in this thing because of these Santa Cruz murders. He kept getting called in as an expert witness or to, you know, he interviewed these guys, Kemper and all of them. And Kemper like was the one who scared him the most. He got kind of shut in the room and hits the panic switch and the deputies don't come quickly enough. <laughs> well, I mean, and as you mentioned, it is his imposing figure. I mean, he is gigantic. He was made famous in the TV show Mindhunter. And yeah, I mean, even in that, the, the, 
the actor that they cast is gigantic. So you, I could understand where you know even a seasoned law enforcement official would be a little intimidated by him, just the sheer size. Who's the I forget the uh, FBI investigator who interviewed him had the same problem. But Lundy's just a Stanford professor. Mm -hmm, You know, right. He's just this middle aged guy. But he's one of the first guys to really look. They don't even call them serial killers in his book. He doesn't call them that. He calls them. He pretty much sticks with mass murderer like that term hasn't even been invented yet when he's talking about it. And there's even a point where Kemper and Mullen are, are apprehended at this around the same time. And they're, they put them in adjoining cells oh, wow. in the Redwood city jail. And uh, so many people like, I don't know why their crimes could be in Santa Clara County. They could be in San Francisco. Like Patty Hearst was held there for a while. They all end up, which is right by where I grew up. They all end up in the Redwood city, the County jail in Redwood city. I don't know why that is, but they're, they're there instead of being in Santa Cruz. Um, it's a bigger jail, I guess. I don't know, but they put them in adjoining cells and Kemper and Mullen are arguing with each other. Yeah. <laughs> and Kemper's like taunting Mullen. Cause Mullen's this, 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 thin, wispy kind of hippie kid and Kemper's this monster, you know, this Andre, the giant type of serial killers. And, uh, and, you know, it's just, I, you know, these bits of these arguments that Lundy writes about, or, you know, just these, you know, uh, you know, Mullen's like, I did this to stop earthquakes, you know, mm, right. <laughs> <laughs> You're a monster. You, you did it for sexual pleasure. You're a freak, you know, and just them going back and forth like this, like this, you know, debate of serial killers, you know, like a Neil Simon play without, without the comedy. Right. Yeah. And Kemper has this thing. I, I don't think he killed any men. So that was something that, he, I, I, now I'm wondering how much I, if I even mentioned this in the book, you're just trying to tie these stories together. I try to keep the stories really tight and really, you know, keep them moving ahead. So, I mean, I go down, go into these side trips that you say, but sometimes it's like, oh, there's too many side trips here. I'm going to leave this out as interesting as it is. But, uh, yeah, there's this kind of inferiority complex because Mullen killed men, you know, that whole, like, you know, you're only killed women, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, uh, I've, I've read like in the Graysmith stuff about the Zodiac killer where he fails to kill men. Like the men are survive his, a couple of his murders. He's murdering couples, but the men survive. And then he kills that cab driver. And the reason he just picks a random cab driver to shoot in the back of the head was to, you know, cause of this inferiority that he's only able to kill these women and these men are surviving. And he's somehow, I mean, they never caught him. So we don't really know that, but that's, that's like a theory, like at least crime journalists come up with, you know, I, I don't know if a psychiatrist, or any kind of mental health professional would would sign on to that, but that's something you read. I mean, it's an interesting story. Do you have any insight after you know researching all three of these individuals? Do you have any understanding as to why they all happened at the same time? Is this just really a random event? I mean, a random series of events that these, or is there something else that would you know social or economic or whatever that would have spawned this type of these type of killers? Well, I can say um, that Donald Lundy in his books in Murder and Madness and what is the Die Song was another book he wrote about these guys. That's a kind of more commercial book. He blames it on uh, Reagan closing the mental health institutions Mm, that he mm. thinks that at least Frazier and Mullen would have would have probably been 
been, you know, at least had, you know, more psychiatric care and been in patients, you know, had been committed at various times and, and some of the stuff would have been prevented. And he writes at the time you have in like the Tenderloin in San Francisco that he calls them. Uh, it's a phrase we're not really supposed to use, but he calls them like ghettos of the mentally ill. We're just in it. That is somewhat true with the homeless population today um, that that these people are just kind of they used to there used to be a place for them and they're just cast aside now. Yeah. Well, I, what's interesting about that is I was just I was just watching this um, show called The Murder at the Cecil Hotel, which is on Netflix. Uh, so it's not it's not a particularly great documentary. It's four parts. It could have easily have been done in one part. It's more about YouTube YouTubers and the quote unquote web sleuth culture. But there's a couple of really interesting experts that they have on there, and one of them I'm going to have on the show. Uh, he's he basically is a historian of Skid Row, and he kind of talks oh, about yeah. what you're talking about here, which is this is where you know the mentally the mentally ill have gone or have been kind of dis discarded to and it's you know they treated this this skid road district in los angeles as a place almost like uh the video game arkham city where you just wall it off and you keep everyone inside this you know 54 block area to keep them out of the rest of the city which is i mean it's terribly dangerous uh, it's part of why that particular hotel had such a bad rap and in some ways i think that is a good point that you make there that it is I think that you can tie it into um, the the lack of resources for the the mentally ill, and you know I think that I don't want to say Reagan's responsible, but those types of those types of policies are directly responsible for the increased number of people on the streets with these problems. And, and then, like I said earlier, in Santa Cruz, you have the university, which which doesn't necessarily create the killers themselves, but it gives them a, a ready supply of victims. You know, these young people that are that are you know, they, they are outside of their home. They're living in dorms or in apartments off campus, um, you know, and it takes a few days maybe for people to realize they're missing. Mm-hmm. Right. You yeah. know, like, uh, you know, you think of when you were away at college, if you were away at college or people, you know, who were they, it might be two or three days before their parents even, or even a week, you know, uh, you know, they aren't coming back to their family homes and their siblings and people aren't necessarily aware that they're gone for a while. So, so that gives, so there's a ready supply of victims. And like I said, the interstate is fairly new at that time, the highways there, the highway 17 and things. So people, the killers have this ability to then just jump on and off the highway and find victims or dump corpses. And so that all, you know, more than maybe that, you know, the catalyst rock club, which is still there, knock on wood um, with COVID and everything, uh, the catalyst rock club that's been there since then. Um, you know, that, that place got death threats because of the serial killers. Like, Oh, it's all your fault for bringing all this hippie stuff here and all this rock and roll. Right. Right. Um, you know, I, I think that really it's just that there's the supply of victims and that there's a way to dispose of them and find them anonymously. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. And I think it's an interesting part. And one of the other things I want to talk about, and I didn't mean to stick on just serial killers here, but we're, I'm just kind of following the flow of conversation. Um, because one of the other ones, I had never heard of this, and I think this is very unique. Uh, you talk about the doodler, which was a serial killer. Um, and this one's kind of interesting because you, for, for whatever reason, you know, and I, I did a lot of criminology in college, but you always hear about, it's, it seems like, 
affluent white men tend to be serial killers or, you know, 95%. They're, they're rarely women. They're rarely minorities. And the doodler was, was very interesting to me because he, he was gay. He preyed on gay men. And from all, you know, all accounts, he was black, which puts him in a very specific category of serial killer. Uh, I just thought the story was really interesting. Yeah, I almost wish I could have spent a little more time on it. He he is in a chapter that that uh, where the crimes parallel the rise of the gay rights movement. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I kind of didn't really necessarily want to have a gay chapter or a queer LGBTQ chapter, but that's kind of how it ended up happening. And they all happen right around the same time. And uh, Harvey Milk's murder is – would be a part of that, but he that that whole thing gets its own chapter, right. of course. Yeah. Um, that the the riots after that the the riot at City Hall after the the uh, manslaughter verdict for Dan White is kind of the culmination of all that stuff. But yeah, the doodler, yeah, and that was a problem is they've had this really good suspect for it for decades, and they could never really pin him down. And because all these people had to be closeted in 1976 and 75. That they couldn't, you know, they were, there was one that was like a prominent entertainer and another that was like an ambassador or in international relations was a, was a diplomat of some kind, a state department. And these people, like maybe they were even married to women and, uh, you know, had this dual life where they would go to San Francisco and have fun. Um, that was very common back then. Um, they never... They, they just wouldn't talk. They wouldn't go on record. They wouldn't press charges. And when you say they wouldn't talk, now you're talking about – because we didn't really say what happened. So a lot of people would would encounter the doodler, which is the – which is the most adorable serial killer name, by the way. I mean, it sounds like, you know, it's almost Seinfeldian. You know, you'd say, like, ah, oh, I ran into the doodler. Um, but he would – you know, he would abduct some of these people and they would get away and they would have information on who he was or they would have – in one way or another, they would have information and would be afraid to speak out for fear of being outed, right? Yes, that's that's it. OK, the doodler – let me back up a bit. He was uh, – um, he's been identified, as you said, as an African-American man and he would pick people up in, in gay bars in San Francisco and gay clubs and they would uh, go back to his place where he or go back to wherever their hotel room and he would murder them and there were several bodies that have been identified as doodler victims that were dumped around the uh, coast side like in in kind of like towards ocean beach if you're familiar with the area the place we've already kind of talked about a lot where over by the cliff house that uh, golden gate park that kind of thing now let me go back one step because he's called the doodler because he would draw pictures of these men before taking them home right that would be his come on like hey i drew this caricature of you or i drew this picture of you and like that would be his 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 pickup line basically that that he would do and uh, so there were some people, uh, the people I mentioned earlier, the diplomat and the famous entertainer, um, who went back to his apartment and they were able to to either overpower him or get out somehow. There's one story that he like had a coat on, like a trench coat, and they go back to his place and he's kind of taken off the coat and a knife falls out. So they're just like, I got out of there. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 It's a good call. <laughs> yeah. So he, uh, you know, he's still around today. Uh, just a couple of years ago, the SFPD had a big 
Like they, they actually had audio of the, uh, the, the first phone call of somebody finding the, the first doodler victim or first known doodler victim's body. Like they had that nine one one. Well, it wasn't a nine one one call back then, but they had the dispatch call from 1974 or 75. And that, that was interesting. And they were, they were really, there was a psychiatrist who examined the suspect and really, I think the SFPD was fishing for that person to violate patient, uh, patient doctor confidentiality and come out and, and, and close this case. There was this article in the all about the doodler, which has a lot of detail, which I used as a source. And that guy like really only attributes four or five or five or six murders to the doodler. And he, he did a lot of research on it, on the case. And, um, hopefully that's still floating around online for people interested in it because he, uh, because the, the all is no more, but it was a very deep dive into the doodler. But yeah, there were these other series of murders of different kinds of queer people, LGBTQ people at that time that I, I would like to, piece out well i mean it's a very it seems like a very rich area because and you know and i've very recently i've had several stories that involve the lgbtq community in a way that's very interesting because it provides cover for a lot of these crimes you know one in particular was about um, a major art robbery and so the people that were getting away ran through uh, what was kind of an underground known lgbtq community mostly gay men and no one wanted to say anything because to say something would imply that you were there which would then out you and so in a lot of ways and it seems like it worked for the doodler it was almost like the perfect cover because it was a group of people who were by their very nature, for the most part, were going to be silent because not being silent would be more detrimental for them um, and it would disrupt their entire lives. So, I mean, it does not surprise me that there are tons of crimes that would happen there. It seems almost a community that's that's would be very, very vulnerable to this type of thing. Not only, you know, for, for that reason alone, I would think. Well, also, there's a lot of mistrust of the police because the police were always beating on right. Them, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, coming in with the billy clubs swinging. And also it was a tactic, at least in San Francisco and probably elsewhere, too, to entrap gay men. Um, you know, you would send in undercover cops who would like come on to you and solicit you and you would think you're going to get lucky and then they would arrest you right. and out you. And so there was just a it took that was a problem with the doodler and a problem with these other murders. And, the you know, I think there might be buried in the Chronicle archives, David Toshke and, and SFPD people like addressing the bad behavior of their their colleagues, you know, that they're not able to really get make progress because this this population, the, the, the gay men or the the queer community just doesn't want to talk to them because they've all been been uh, abused by them you know everybody had their their cop beat me story or the you know no i think that's exactly right i mean it's i just i mean from the name to the story the doodler was was one of my favorites and to me it's a fun place to end it in your book you know you we you cover so many different things that we didn't get to which i love i'm going to mention a couple of them here the lavender panthers which i'd never heard of the black panthers you talk about anton lavey the san francisco zoo mick jagger um you've got the first female lynching 
in California. You've got the last California lynching, which we may talk about. We're going to do a quick little bonus episode on on Brookie Hart and his kidnapping, which you've dubbed the stupidest crime in California history. We're going to have a little bonus episode for that. But this was a great book. I love that I got an advanced copy. I feel really special about that. If people want to get a hold of a copy of this book, which is out now, how can people do that? Well, you it, it's you know it is distributed in the U.S. and Canada, so your local indie bookstore will will have it. Um, all the regular online places where you order books will have it. Uh, you know, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and them um, that we all know about. Um, my website. I can sign you an autographed copy or send you an autographed copy, which you can order through murders that made us.com. So because, and that's really like, I'm only really getting into that business because of, of COVID-19. I'm not really going to be able to do as many live events or any live events until later. And people seem to want signed copies. So I ha- will have those available at murders that made us.com. And that will also tell you all the other places you could buy it. But if you have an independent bookstore that you go to, you can order it through them and they, they should even have it, especially in California. It should just be there this year. Absolutely. And how can people get in touch with you if they want to find you online? Do you do social media? Where are you? I'm at, tw- I'm on Twitter. You can find me there but murders that made us.com will have links to me on goodreads facebook and and uh twitter well, there you go well this has been fun and i can't wait to talk about brookie heart i'm going to do a quick little bonus episode i'm excited about that uh but this has been a lot of fun bob calhoun thank you so much not only for being on this show but for not falling down that rabbit hole and becoming a serial killer yourself i know you have an alter ego count dante uh but i know how how this kind of stuff can really get into your head but you seem to have emerged unscathed and i'm impressed bob Oh, thank you so much. And thanks for having me on again. Yeah, you got it, man. Uh, And thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn co-production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Hey, remember, if you love this show, you got to subscribe. Luckily, we are available on all the major podcasting platforms. And if you're not subscribed to those already, I got you covered. Go to the Fascinating Nouns webpage, fascinatingnouns.com, and you can find links to those said podcasting platforms at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And you can also find us on social media. We've got our Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages all there right on the homepage. And if you want to follow all of our episodes, they are free and available, including several bonus episodes right there at the top, organized by guests and by episode number so it's right there you can get in touch with everything that you want to listen to and check out the pages the individual pages were on youtube as well some of the 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 episodes in their entirety as well as some pictures that we have videos and some of the articles that we talked about and if you like this show you're gonna like everything that i do go to danieljglenn.com to find out more thank you for listening end of transmission Thank you.